If you'd like to open your Bibles to Hebrews 13, we're going to be looking at verse 21 this morning. Last week we looked at verse 20, which, was, which is part of a longer statement that encompasses verse 21 as well. But we'll just be reading verses 20 and 21 from Hebrews 13. And I encourage you to follow along as I read this portion aloud. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Some two years after Abraham's descendants had left Egypt, if you remember from our time in the book of Numbers, they had received the law. God had sealed a covenant with them through the sprinkling of blood and there came a time when his ancient people stood on the verge of entering the land of promise. It was at that time that God came to Moses and told him to instruct Aaron and his sons to speak a priestly blessing over his people. And the words that Aaron spoke, I think, are familiar to most of you. You may not always remember that this comes from God's word because it sounds kind of like an Irish poem. Uh, may, the may the road rise up to meet you and all that. That's not in the Bible, but this one is, and it sounds kind of like that type of poem. But the words that Aaron spoke over God's people were, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This week as I was thinking about Hebrews 13 and verse 20 and the God, that now may the God of peace, my mind somehow shot back to that passage and I saw the corollary of God's blessing being spoken over those people and God's blessing being spoken over us today as we read Hebrews 13. And in both cases, a central focus of that blessing is God's peace. And here in Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, the writer of this letter communicates the Holy Spirit's words to us, the modern people of God, and speaks like, as I said, a very similar blessing or what we call a benediction. At the end of our services, uh, we do a benediction, and I, I learned, actually, because I, you know, there's words that we use, and we know generally what the meaning is, but I, I, thought, I was thinking this week, so what is the exact definition of a benediction? How many of you grew up in church as young people that there was a benediction at the end of the service? Okay, some of you, a lot of you did. I didn't. I grew up in Baptist circles where there was not a benediction. 
Um, they basically told us to go home. Uh, we sang a song and everybody was dismissed. And uh, I didn't grow up with that. And I recently learned that you're supposed to hold your hand up when you do a benediction. And I don't do that and I'm not going to do that because it doesn't feel comfortable to me and I don't think that it does anything besides, you know, some kind of a tradition. So, um, so I'm not going to do that. But I decided to see what the definition of a benediction is. And basically what it means is to speak to God's people a promise of God or some reality about God. That's really what it means. And it's a blessing is the idea. Dismissing them with a reminder of who God is or what God has promised to his people. And that's what this is here, is a benediction. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us of uh, redemptive, really wonderful redemptive truths in verse 20. He, he just loads this passage with a whole bunch of information in very short form. He reminds us that our Heavenly Father is the God of peace. And as I talked about last week, we are to be people of peace. And he ties that imagery or that reminder of the reality of who God is as the God of peace with the imagery of our Savior as the great shepherd of the sheep. And I've, I've hoped that this last week, maybe that imagery of the shepherd with his sheep on the hillside has found its way back into your mind at some time or another. I think it's, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a shaping thing. In the midst of all of the noise that surrounds us, to realize that our shepherd is watching over us and cares for us and is leading us and protects us and provides for us. That was the imagery that David created when he wrote Psalm 23. And by the way, just as a point of trivia, there's many people who believe, many scholars who believe that David wrote that Psalm 23 when he was somewhere between eight to 10 years old sitting on the side of the hills watching over his father's sheep. Every time I think about that, I, th I envision eight to 10 year olds. And there was something happening in David, something stirring, something that he understood at a very young age because of the Holy Spirit working in his soul. We're also told in verse 20 that because Jesus shed his blood for our sins and because God has raised him from the dead, when a person believes these things to be true, an eternal covenant is established between God and that person. He doesn't just say a covenant. Significantly, he says an eternal covenant, something that can never end, something that can never be broken. When God through Moses, established a covenant with his ancient people. He might have made it quite clear that that covenant was conditioned upon the performance of the people. It was not what we call an unconditional covenant. If they obeyed, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed. And in the end, they would be killed for it. And there's plenty of examples of that along the way. But the covenant, and it was not eternal, but the covenant 
that God established through the blood of Christ is eternal. And what's interesting to me, and I will throw this out to you today, and I may lose you for the rest of the sermon this morning, as your mind runs down the trails of the but, but what, but what, you can figure this out later for yourself. We are often told about God's unconditional love, and I will say to you today that God's love is not unconditional. God's love for you and his relationship with you is conditional. But it is not conditioned upon your performance. God's love for you and his relationship with you is conditioned upon the sacrifice, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You say, but he loved me enough to send Jesus to die for me. Yes, because in eternity past, God had established that Jesus would die. And we are told that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. His love for you and his relationship with you is not conditional, but it is not conditioned upon you either. And because it's not conditioned upon you and because it is conditioned upon the blood of Jesus who continues to live, according to Hebrews, that covenant continues to exist and always will exist as long as Jesus exists. And his priesthood that brings final and complete cleansing from sin and final and complete forgiveness of sin and allows us to enter into the presence of God never ends and never changes. And because of what Jesus has done in establishing this eternal covenant, peace, God's shalom, we think that's a wonderful word, and it is, but we think it's a cool word because of the way it's said, typically. God's peace, God's shalom becomes the reality of the believer's relationship with God. It becomes the inner reality of the believer. And it is the, to be the way in which the believer interacts with others. Shalom. Peace and blessing internally in relationship with God and what we extend to others. Verse 21 continues this blessing that the writer communicates, this benediction, moving from what God has done from us to what, what God has done for us to what God is doing in us and how both bring glory to God. Verse 20 is about what God has done for us. Verse 21 is about what God is doing in us, and the end of verse 21 speaks of how all of this brings glory to God. And with this in mind, there are three things I would like for us to consider today. Three main ideas from verse 21 that I want us to consider today. First, that God enables us to obey him. God enables us to obey him, and without God's enabling, we will not obey him. Secondly, our obedience to God brings him pleasure. If there was something in this verse that is stunning to me, it is that our obedience to God brings 
God pleasure. And I'll explain later why I think that's stunning. And the third thing that is very common, at least in the circles in which most of us think and move theologically, is that God seeks glory from how we live. God enables us to obey him. Our obedience to him brings him pleasure. And God seeks glory from how we live. So those are the three things. We'll start with the first there, that God enables us to obey him. I think it's important for us. It's important for us once in a while to at least reflect on this reality, to be reminded of the fact that in our natural state, from birth, who we are on our own, we have no capacity to obey God. No capacity to obey God. There is no spark of divinity in us. There is no light that needs to be flamed up, but it's there. On our own, we exist as dark, disobedient people who do not want to acknowledge God for who he is and do not want to follow him. We have no capacity to obey God. We have no ability to please him. In fact, as I was saying in our own power, we have no desire to obey him or please him. Now, some might object to that with all of the religious worship that takes place out there apart from Christ. With all of the people who deny scripture but want to acknowledge God and worship God. And so someone might object to that and say, well, there obviously is a desire to obey God. There obviously is a desire to please him, or there wouldn't be so many religions out there. But the fact is that unless you root yourself in Scripture and submit yourself to what Scripture says completely, you are creating a God that you can worship, a God that you can tolerate. And you really are not desiring the one true God. You're desiring to express worship to a God that satisfies you in your mind and is shaped to what you want him to be and what you expect him to do for you. The reason I believe this fact is important for us to be reminded of is because there is in us this tendency to live independently of the Holy Spirit's power and influence. We need to be reminded that in our natural state, we move away from God. We, we reject God for who he is. In our natural state, we do not desire him. We need to be reminded of that because of our tendency to live independently of him. Now, you might think that statement is unfair. Some of you are nodding with me, and that's great. That might be because you really like me. <laughs> Maybe because you agree. But I want you to at least think through this, and you might think it's unfair, but I want to ask you a simple question to make my point. When faced with some kind of problem in your life, great or small, some frustration comes up, some situation comes up, 
whether it's a small little irritation or a big thing of life like sickness, death. The question is, how often do you first pray before beginning to deal with the problem, before beginning to figure out a solution to the problem, before beginning to think about how you're going to interact with this new problem? How often do you first pray? And if you're anything like me, you didn't do very well on that question. Our typical response to problems in our lives, whether they're great or small, is to turn to prayer, to turn to God, after we haven't been able to solve the problem on our own. In fact, we may realize we've made a bigger mess of the situation, and now we better get God in on this because we really screwed it up, you know? Oh, you know, we'll pray now. And what that illustrates, when we pray after we have exhausted our resources, what that reveals even more than it illustrates, what it reveals is that we believed that we can solve our problems without God's intervention. Because we believe in our heart of hearts, on our own, that we are enough. That we can fix it. That we can take care of it. That we don't need to bother God with this. We have a tendency to act independently of God because we see ourselves as enough. And we don't desire him and we don't desire to obey or please him to the extent that we should. If God is at work in all things for our good, according to Romans 8.28, and if that good is to be conformed to the image of Christ, should we not, when facing problems in our lives, turn to him and begin with, God, I know that you're at work in my life for good, even through this problem. I know that, that this even insignificant problem is from your good hand. And I know that this problem that I'm facing is, is intended to conform me to the image of Christ. And I know that naturally I don't want that. Grow this in me. Do this good work and help me to respond. You see, the, where we're beginning with that is wanting God to do the impossible work that we can't do, but he can. It's impossible for us. It's possible for him to begin conforming us, to continue conforming us to the image of Christ in all things. And therefore, I cannot afford to live independently 
I need him, and I need the desire to be like him, to be at work in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's good for us to be aware of that problem, that tendency to live independently of the Holy Spirit. And the reason, in the end, why this is so important so important to understand in our lives is that it cannot be overstated. I can't say it enough, loud enough, long enough. It cannot be overstated that if we are going to live externally in a way that obeys God, something has to change internally. Something has to be happening inside of us that results in external change and that something that has to happen internally requires supernatural intervention. And that supernatural intervention is what God is communicating to us through the pen of the writer of Hebrews 13, 21. Now may the God of peace equip you equip you. That you may do his will. I love this word equip. It has, it's one of those words, it's, I've used this illustration before in relation to love, that, that the Bible speaks of love, but that love is, is like a diamond. It just the word has a lot of facets to it, and depending on how you turn it, you'll see different colors, different sparkles, different, different uh, aspects of the beauty of that diamond. And this word is kind of like that. In classical Greek, Plato, Socrates, those guys, dead people. Those guys that are really hard to read and understand, but it's good for you to read and understand them, just because that's what I was told, just because so you got to read them. But they use this to refer to the, the, the refitting of a broken bone. Equipping. A bone was broken and the resetting of it. When I was in college, a few months before Terry and I were supposed to be married in spring soccer, someone decided that the best choice of defending me with the ball and keeping me from scoring a goal was to kick me in the leg and take me down. What they didn't mean to do was snap my leg completely. So as I saw his leg coming and I jumped up in the air and I felt his foot hit my shin on the one time I didn't wear shin guards, practice or games, I forgot him. And I heard my leg snap, and as I flipped over in the air and landed and felt that pain, I just laid there and thought, I broke my leg. I broke my leg. And they called paramedics, and they came. The head of the uh, campus safety. I had coached his son in soccer and we'd become good friends and he actually when he heard the call he came 
And I was laying there on the ground and people were gathered around me, staring at me because there was nothing they could do. They were all staring at me going, ooh, making noises and faces. And the head of campus safety got there and they, the other guys were looking at it. The EMTs were already looking at it and trying to figure out what to do. And, and he directed them what to do. And I started to sit up and look at my leg. Clarity started to sink in. And I sat up to look at my leg and he just took his hand and shoved it in my chest and pushed me to the ground and said, you don't want to see it. The bone had snapped and the lower bone and the upper bone had gone like this. And it was nasty. And my friends were saying they'd, they'd cut my socks off, brand new stinking socks. I was so mad. I was just like, don't cut my socks. I just bought those. And they were like, you know, we're going to cut your socks. And they cut them off. And then my friends were going, oh, it's green, and it's purple, and it's nasty. And they took me to the emergency room. And the doctor said they were going to put me under sedation, and they'd set my leg. And I had this dream while they were setting my leg. I saw one doctor standing holding my lower bone leg and the other doctor standing and holding my thigh and they just pulled them apart and then put them back together and in the next day the doctor came in and he said do you remember anything from last night and i said yeah i had this really weird dream and i explained it. he said that wasn't a dream we saw your eyes open when we started to set your leg that's how they did it And to this day, I have a bent leg, and some of you have seen me in shorts, and you're like, what's wrong with his leg? That is, somebody told me that's a love mark from God. That he wanted to move me in a particular direction. He closed certain doors through a broken leg and moved me in a different way, uh, opened other doors for me to go down. And honestly, it's a large part of why I'm a pastor today. It's a long story, but it's, a, it's, it's part of that story. That's the idea that something is really wrong. Something is very broken. And the classics, the, the classicists of the Greek language used it in that way. And by the time of Paul, it referred to repairing or refitting to mend, to make completely adequate or sufficient. The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that God is at work in us repairing and refitting and mending and healing and restoring what's broken. I love this word and I love this statement. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Everything good. That's what God is doing in you through the circumstances of your life, through the teaching of God's word, through the encouraging of other Christians, through the corporate gathering for worship. God is equipping you with everything good to do his will. He's taking everything that's been messed up by the curse 
everything that has been done to you and he is using it for your good to make you more like Christ and to be able to do his will. And I would say to you this morning that because he is equipping us and because he's not like you or me, when we try to fix things, we sometimes make them worse. Or they just don't come out quite the way we'd want them to. But when God equips us, he is investing everything good in us and we cannot say, I'm not able. I can't. If the God of the universe who spoke things into existence and if Jesus, the, the Son of God, who holds all things together simply by thinking about it, and if the Holy Spirit who is powerful and is indwelling in us, is at work in us, we cannot honestly stand back and say, this is not possible, this is too hard. I am not able. That is a lie. And because he is accomplishing this, accomplishing this through our union with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot say he is not able. Paul writes elsewhere that with the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at work in you as a believer. God does the impossible. He brings people back from the dead. He brought Jesus back from the dead. There was absolutely no question that he was dead. He had bled out. He had a spear into his heart. That is dead, dead. And it takes incredible power. It takes the power of life which no one possesses but God. And we cannot say he is not able either. And therefore we should never blame God for our sinful choices. God did not fail you. God, it is not that God did not hear you. You are able through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have no right to point a finger back at God and say, you didn't stop me. Hogwash. And because his work is good, as he tells us here, everything good. And those two great words. He is equipping you with everything good. Because his work is good, we cannot honestly say it's not fair or it's too hard. And neither should we ever give up because it is at times hard. And lastly, 
God is equipping you. He is mending you. He is refitting you. He is repairing you. He is making you completely adequate or sufficient so that you cannot say, I am not able. He is accomplishing this through our union with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we cannot say he is not able. His work is good and therefore we cannot honestly say it is too hard. And we also should remember that we are not passive in this work. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That you may do his will. We are not passive in this work. There is a realm of theology called Keswick theology that came out of England. There are some famous revivalists who bought into Keswick theology. I won't name them this morning because there may be some of your favorite people and you'll be mad at me forever. And I'll lose you. But the Keswick theology, if you want to put it into a nice little phrase, it's let go and let God. You heard that one? Let go and let God. Hands off. Jesus, take the wheel, Carrie Underwood. And God says, get your hands back on the wheel, dude, and drive where you're supposed to go. I'm putting gas in the car. I'm making the car run. The GPS is on. Listen to it and drive. We are not passive in this, wor in this work. We are not people who are supposed to pray until some ex existential zap hits us and then we become like, do, 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 can go obey, obey God, do my thing. And he's just making me do it. It is a conscious decision. It is a willing of the heart to want what God wants. And we have a responsibility to choose what is right. Paul tells us in Galatians, about the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. And we look at that list and, well, I'm not into witchcraft. Nope, not me. No, I don't do that, and shoo, I don't get drunk, and haven't done an orgy in the last six weeks, so I'm good with that, too. Everything's good. I don't have the works of the flesh in me. Oh, what about idolatry and enmity, which is hatred or anger towards another person, or strife, been involved on an argument on Facebook lately? Jealousy, mmm, fits of anger, rivalries, trying to get ahead by putting somebody else down, dissension, divisions, envy. Amazing, that's, that's in the same list of orgies 
and witchcraft. Those are works of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, I mean, just think for a moment. Think about the news over the last week. Sorry to interrupt your worship time this morning, but think about the news over the last week, which you've read on the internet, which you've seen on your TV, which you've heard on the radio, which you've received in your inbox, which you've read on Twitter, which you've gotten in an email, about these types of things going on out there. And it's going on out there. And it's going on in here. And it's coming out of here. Or it's coming out of here. That's not magic. That's called typing on a keyboard. Or, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So just for a moment here this morning, what, what, what's defining you? Outside of Sunday morning, in your home, in your workplace, in traffic, with your friends, with your echo chamber, on social media? Is it love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Or is it sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Let me just put it this way. What's the direction of your life? Where are you headed on those things? What's defining your moment-to-moment reality. And I want to say to you, the understanding God's equipping in us is important because how I live reveals through my choices the level of my cooperation with God's equipping. I'm not trying to produce guilt this morning. Just trying, trying to be real, man, whatever generation that came from, I don't know. I grew up in cool and groovy, so it's just weird. It's all weird. Bell-bottom jeans and all that. But as you, as you think about your life just over the last week, through your choices, has it been works of the flesh that are natural, or has it been a revelation of cooperation with God's equipping? I'm not asking you if you're perfect. I'm also not excusing your sin. I'm asking you what is your direction? What defines you? Where are you headed? 
And have you become complacent with who you are and where you are? And I'm going to say to you that as long as you are breathing on, this face, on the face of this earth, God is at work in you, mending you, and refitting you, and repairing you to do his will. Are you cooperating with that? That was point number one. So let's do point number two and point number three quickly. God enables us to obey him. Our obedience to him brings us pleasure. God is equipping us to produce obedience that brings him pleasure. That's the statement. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us which is pleasing in his sight. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Not the first time this idea has been presented to us. In fact, it's a theme, chapter 12, chapter 13. In verse 28 of chapter 12, the writer says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and therefore let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That, well, that word acceptable, I don't know why they translated it as acceptable. It means well-pleasing. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And in verse 15 of chapter 13, the writer says, Therefore, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Well-pleasing, pleasing, and pleasing. I think he had a theme here. I'm not the brightest bulb on the planet, but I picked that one up. God is at work in you to produce obedience that brings pleasure to him. And that is an amazing, stunning concept to me. Because one of the core truths about God is that he needs absolutely nothing. That he is completely satisfied in himself. As the Trinity, there is no longing for something that it does not have, he does not have, they do not have. But this God who is transcendent and satisfied finds pleasure in what we do when we obey him. A guy that <clears throat> I like a lot of what he says. I don't agree with him on everything he says. I know that won't surprise you, but 
John Piper describes this as, it makes God smile. Do you realize that what you do when you obey God, when you cooperate with the Holy Spirit, as the evidence of Christ-likeness grows in you, God smiles. That is stunning to me. When was the last time that you had a sweet ant in your house? We had sweet ants this past week. They're those little tiny, tiny things. And you go to the store and you buy taro and you put a little bit out there and pretty soon they're all on it, sucking it up, and they run back to their, their little tribe. What are they called? Their little, they go down their hole into their little space, their echo chamber, and then they start feeding it to the queen and she dies. <clears throat> I talk about guilt. That's guilt. They just killed the queen this week. Off with their heads. But when was the last time that you watched an ant and just smiled because it was doing what it's supposed to do? Are you even aware that ants are around you if they're not crawling up your legs? And yet, human beings that in comparison to the transcendence of God would on a scale be something beyond microscopic. That you can actually do something that makes him smile, that brings pleasure to him. I, I just find that amazing. But I would argue that obedience to God brings him pleasure, at least in part, because it's his desire to display to his creation that he is powerful to redeem his creation. It displays to his creation that he is overturning the curse of sin. And it displays to his creation that he has the power to transform humans from the likeness of Satan into the likeness of his son. And in doing so, he also intends to display what he enjoys and approves. You know, there's going to be a day when God's children present themselves to him, and, and I strongly believe that he will say to every one of his children, well done. Welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I strongly believe, I can't... I can't give you a specific verse, but based on the, the tone of Scripture and God's relationship with his children, that when I do what he wants me to do and I display his power in me to be the person that he wants me to be, that he gets a smile and he says, boy, John, good job. I mean, some of you are fathers who have sons that you're involved with them in sports or you have daughters that you're involved with them in sports and you, they do well. They do something in the game that's good and you're on the sideline just cheering away. And you're clapping and you're hollering. You know, maybe you're not a dad, maybe you're a mom. I've seen moms that are more vocal than dads. But you're excited and you're cheering for them if a human parent would do that for their child, 
when their child does what they're supposed to do. Can we not at least believe that God smiles and says, attaboy. Good job, John. Therefore, how I live is important because it demonstrates what I believe God enjoys and approves. Lastly, God seeks glory from how we live, not just what we say or sing or think. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, we use this word glory a lot in Christian circles. We sing about glory along with oceans and seas. You know, if you want a good Christian song, you have to have ocean or seas or mountains or fire or wind and glory and a few ah-ah-ahs and hallelujah. And then you got a song. We use that word a lot. And we've used it a lot to the point it, become a mo- it becomes a mostly meaningless cliche. But the idea in simple usage means to increase our own or others' view of someone or something. If we're trying to get glory for ourselves, we're trying to increase uh, uh, our, we're trying to increase the positivity of how someone else thinks about us or exalts us, our reputation. In this case, in this verse, this increase means that we point others to God and help them to better understand him for who he is. We live our lives in a daily basis as people of the God of peace as God is working in us to produce obedience and we're cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit, as that internal becomes external, we are displaying who God is, what he enjoys and approves, and we're pointing other people to him. And bringing glory to God then is a good thing and what God desires, because when a person's heart wants to know God and wants God to be known for all he is and all he has done, he is headed in a direction and is leading others towards God's shalom, the place of peace, the place of God's presence, the place of God's blessing. It is the kind of life and it is the place of which we read in Psalm 1, blessed is the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Blessed, not hashtag blessed, blessed. Blessed is the man whose mind is wrapped up in God and things of God to the point that it produces a way of life because it produces a way of thinking. It consumes him or her and that person then flourishes. It's like a tree planted in the best possible place. For flourishing and that tree flourishes.
Therefore, how I live is important because it points people to who or what I believe is of greatest value. In light of all of this, I would then ask a simple question. Are you living in a way that evidences cooperation with his work in you, that desires to please him and exalts his person and wonderful works in your own eyes and the eyes of others? We're not talking about external conformity to rules. That is legalism, and you know how I feel about that. We are talking about a desire to cooperate with God internally that produces spiritual growth and flourishing internally so that the external life is an overflow and revelation of what's going on inside. And it will not work to simply change the external so people think well of me and think I'm a good Christian person. It is about a continual pursuit of obedience through cooperation with the Holy Spirit so that there is a renovation inside, a transformation inside that leads to a completely different and radically way of living on the outside. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, as I read these words they strike deep in my soul and they cause me to praise you and thank you for your patience I have known you as my father for 55 years And that there, yet there has been so much resistance and refusal and deflecting in significant ways over those 55 years. But I thank you for your constant love, your steadfast love your faithfulness, your patience, your mercy, your kindness, that you have never given up on me. And I praise you that I can say I am not the man I used to be. But I stand before you knowing also that I am not yet the man you intend me to be. And Father, I stand in a company of people who are not who they used to be, that do not have the same values to the extent they used to have them, that you are transforming and changing, and I praise you that you have revealed that through how they speak and how they respond and how they live, and I thank you that it is evident enough for us to see in each other's lives. 
But as like me, they are not yet what you intend for them to be either. And we look forward to and we long for the day when Jesus returns because when we see him, we will be like him. In the meantime, Father, I pray that you would continue your good work in us, that you would continue the work of repairing and mending and refitting Help us by your power to want that. Help us not to be satisfied with external conformity for acceptance by human beings, but help us out of grateful hearts to want internally, to desire internally what is pleasing in your sight for your glory our good. In the name of Jesus, to be praised. And I ask this in your son's name. Amen.